There are many decisions to be made when binding a book over and above the choice of binding material. The inlays, onlays, gilding, embossing, stitching, stamping, end papers, ex libris, boards, frontispiece, edges, headband, glue, joints, marbling, slipcase, the title page. All these were choices about which the Baroness, for all the trust she invested in me, liked to be consulted before any work could begin. That evening, I opened the package to inspect it. Seven lustrous pearls tumbled out of their black velvet purse. The enclosed leather was dyed coral red. The ivory miniature was not, as is traditionally the case with Cosway-style binding, a portrait, but a stylized illustration in black ink of an open eye. Finally, I took in hand the manuscript itself. Even when specifically instructed not to read it, the most scrupulous bookbinder cannot help but accidentally glimpse certain words or phrases. In this case, the handwritten title leapt out at me, Crossings. Underneath the title was a long jumble of figures, also handwritten, seemingly without any bearing on the manuscript. It consisted of what appeared to be three separate documents, all written by hand in French, although one of them was significantly older than the other two and written in a different hand. The manuscript appeared to have had an eventful existence. Many of the pages were creased, folded over or mottled with damp, and the paper itself was yellowing and pungent with a chocolatey, nutty aroma that old paper exhales as it decays. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Alex Landragon reading from his debut novel, Crossings. It begins as a bookbinder tells the story of how he came across a strange manuscript made up of three separate tales. One is a letter written by a lyric poet in the 19th century to an illiterate young girl. The second is a romance story set in Paris in 1940 as Germany invades. The third story follows the journeys of a woman with arcane powers. You can read this book conventionally, front to back, or you can follow a seemingly random zigzagging route through the stories, where you start on page 150 and leap backwards and forwards through the novel. Whichever way you read Crossings, it tells an incredibly imaginative story stretching across 150 years, about seven lifetimes and two souls. I have the author of the book joining me on the phone from Melbourne. Hi, Alex. How are you going? Good, Angus. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, So reading your author bio, you seem like one of those people who has done many different things in many different places around the globe. You've worked as a travel writer, a Lonely Planet author, a cheesemaker, a wine merchant and a musician. How did you get into travel writing? Was that always an ambition of yours? Well, I had a very um, multicultural childhood. Um, I was born in France. I had a French father and an Armenian mother. We came to Australia when I was a child 
and there was always a lot of travel in my childhood. When I was in my mid-teens, I decided that come what may, I would be a writer. And a few years later, after I came out of uni, I was still determined to be a writer. And at the time, it was the late 1990s, it was really the, the boom time in travel publishing. Lonely Planet was just starting to take off. In my final year of university, I was lucky enough to win a travel writing competition with the Australian newspaper. And I think that set me up for working for Lonely Planet. When I, when I got to Lonely Planet, I worked uh, on their website for a couple of years, which set me up in the, in the day job that I just described to you earlier. It also helped me enter into authoring guidebooks, which I did for a number of years with them. Do you remember what that initial story was about, the one that you won the competition for? Yeah, I do. It was about Marseille, uh, which is a city in the south of France on the Mediterranean where my Armenian grandparents moved when they moved from the Soviet Union to France in the 1960s. Was the reason why you travelled so often when you were younger because you had a lot of family scattered across the globe or was it for work that your parents travelled a lot? Like, what was the reason for your nomadic childhood? For both, actually, both reasons. Um, So... There was obviously a lot of travel just to see family because uh, we had no extended family in Australia and uh, my grandparents would come over every now and then to visit us. My father was a winemaker who um, was self-employed, so he, uh, at a certain point in the 1980s, would travel to and from France because he was uh, importing his family champagne into Australia. My father is from the Champagne region and his family, or my family, my paternal family, has been making champagne for at least 200 years and possibly longer. Uh, So in the 1980s, he was importing that, so he would go to and from France. And then when I was 18, my family, my parents and sisters moved to the US. So I entered a period where I was travelling to the US and France a lot as well. But uh, over and above that, there was a lot of travel and there was a lot of migration and lots of refugee stories and genocide survival stories in the, uh, on my mother's side of the family as well, stretching back several generations. Yeah. So as you said, that sort of childhood moving around set you up to be a travel writer and to work for Lonely Planet. What's it like to work for Lonely Planet? Would you describe it as more glamorous or gruelling? Well, when you're authoring travel guides, it's the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> uh, it was some of the best stuff I've ever done, and I am eternally grateful uh, to the company and to the founders of that company for having given me the opportunity to do that because I got to travel around Australia. I got to travel around France, which was the country of my birth, and I really got to discover in a France in a way that I hadn't been able to because we'd left France when I was so young. And finally, I got to do a bit of travel around Western Africa as well. And that was, again, the best and the worst of all those experiences because it's such a rough and ready place, but also the the people are so amazing over there. Working for Lonely Planet, writing for Lonely Planet is all about the details. It's It's about gathering together hundreds of little details every day and then making notes of them, organising them, so that when you go back home and you have a few weeks of writing it all up, you can put it together in a way that's useful for the travellers. Is it true that the best travel stories come from when everything goes wrong? Absolutely. 
I remember when I was beginning my assignment in West Africa, the place I landed in was Dakar in Senegal. And I'd never been to Africa before. I'd travelled in some other third world countries, but Africa was on uh, the next level. And I got to the airport in the middle of the night and um, I saw an ATM in the airport and I thought, oh, I should get get some money out now because I don't know what the money situation is in town. I I withdrew 100 US dollars, but in the local currency and the local currency ended up being brick size uh, for for that amount. Oh, my God. So So I was stuffing all these notes in my pockets and I turned around and a young man kind of trotted up to me and he said, I'll find you a taxi. And he grabbed all my bags and he just trotted off. And I step outside of the airport and into like a dusty night. And I see that all the taxis are on my right in the line. But the young man has trotted off with my bags towards the left into the darkness. And I thought, oh, this isn't good. A minute later, he rocks up in the back of a really beaten up old taxi And he says, this is your taxi. And I said, oh, okay, I've got a few warning bells ringing, but I I say, okay, we'll need to go along with it. I get in, the the young man is in the passenger seat at the front, and then all of a sudden two other young men get up, uh, uh, get in and sit on either side of me, and I thought... Oh, I can't believe this. I'm going to get robbed as soon as... In my first hour of being here... Yeah. The taxi kind of starts lurching forward, but slowly because there are so many people in it. And I see out of the corner of my eye on my left, a man running up towards the car and he dives in through the open driver's side window and tackles the driver and they start arguing basically in the local language, basically saying, this is my fare, you've stolen my fare. And the car stops Everyone gets out, my bags are taken out and, I'm pu- and put into a regular taxi and I get to drive away in the regular taxi. And it was such a heart-in-mouth kind of moment, but it was also a moment where, where I thought, this is going to be fun and I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Oh, I think that really illustrates that horribly stressful in the moment, but memories to last a lifetime and it makes for Absolutely. a great story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so... I saw that a few years ago you embarked on a quest to write a new piece of fiction every day and that you managed to do that for 160 days. Uh, What made you undertake that challenge and what did you learn from doing it? Well, because I'm French, I strongly associate and identify with a certain kind of tradition of literature, which you could call the content, you know, the European kind. Uh, And all through my, I I decided to be a writer when I was in my mid-teens, but I've always had a real struggle um, trying to decide what I wanted to write about. And so, you know, 20 years after having decided to become a writer, I was still struggling in that sense. So at the age of 39, I decided to really push myself and to try to do something that had never been done before. I'm interested in formal experimentation. So I set up a website called The Daily Fiction Project where I decided to write and publish a short story every day. Uh, Not uh, only 
five days a week, so every weekday. And um, I was 39 at the time, and I found it to be actually really, really thrilling. No one paid any attention to it. It didn't get, it didn't get any attention at all, but I found it to be uh, interesting and uh, stimulating and exciting. So I kept going with it. I wanted to do it for a whole year. But what happened was uh, I turned 40, and soon after I turned 40, a couple of majorly upsetting things happened in my life. One of them happened to my partner at the time, and a month later, another, a, a second thing happened to me. I had a motorcycle accident. But I really believe in the power of art to, to be a really nourishing part of everyday life. So I decided to keep going with the Daily Fiction Project. And... The further I went, the more challenging it became. The, the, digger, the deeper I had to dig for ideas to write about every day. And by the time I got into the eighth month, I was really, really scratching around. And I, and I remembered a story that I had been told by a creative writing professor 20 years earlier that had really blown my mind. And I... And I decided to write my own version of that story. And the story was this. It was very simple. Chris Wallace Grab was his name. He'd come into class one day and he'd said, oh, I've just read the most amazing story. It's about a ship that discovers an island, and on this island people can swap from one body to another. And by the time the ship sails away, you don't know who's gone and who's left behind. And um, I couldn't remember who had written this story that my instructor had told us about. But I thought, I'll write my own version of that story. And the next morning I was thinking about this and I realised that the ending of that story, which was someone else's story, someone I don't know even to this day, was actually the beginning of a much bigger and more interesting story. And all of a sudden the idea for Crossings, the novel, just came to me like a vision in the course of one or two days. It all just kind of clicked for me. And I knew at that point that I had finally, after eight months of the Daily Fiction Project and after 25 years of really looking for a theme that would really suit me, I had finally discovered that. And I thought to myself, I don't need to spend much more time with the Daily Fiction Project. It served its purpose. And I ended it soon after on, on the round figure of 160 stories and I launched into my novel. And it's taken me six years to write that novel. Fantastic. That is so interesting because I was going to ask because um, I saw that you thanked Chris Wallace Crabb. And if people don't know, he's, he's quite a you know legendary Australian poet and critic. And you thank him in your acknowledgements and say that you, a story that he told you long ago, you know, sparked crossings. And um, I was going to ask after that. And I guess, you know, what you've just said has answered that question. Um, so, yeah, I guess in some ways, crossings is like continuing a story written by someone that we don't know. That's so interesting. Exactly. And and he actually got in touch uh, about uh, 10 or 12 years ago when I blogged about that story on a, on a different uh, blog that I had at the time, a non-fiction blog, and, he, and he, I had told that little anecdote and he, he got in touch and he said, I have no idea. I can't even remember that story. <laughs> 
Wow. Wow. Another mystery to add to this book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But that's why I, th- I really like the opening line of, of the preface uh, of the novel, which is, I didn't write this book, I stole it. Mm. And even though it makes sense uh, within the plot of the book, it also has a second dimension, which is I, I stole the idea uh, for this book, the, the little germ of an idea, from someone. I don't know who it is. I'd love to know who it is. And I hope one day I, I find out. Maybe one day, yeah. Um, The preface which you just mentioned there and read from at the start of this podcast tells the the story of how the three uh, threads or tales that make up the novel were discovered by a Parisian bookbinder. Uh, He had this wealthy client who's a bibliophile who he refers to as the Baroness who sent him this mysterious manuscript. Why did you decide to frame the novel in that way? So... The tradition of literature that I referred to earlier, which I called the continental tradition or European tradition, whatever you want to call it, um, it goes back to uh, a writer like, for example, Borges, uh, who was working in the mid-20th century. Uh, It's also known as metafiction. It's a tradition that's that's, um, really fascinated with the book as an object, It's a tradition that's always trying to remind the reader that they're reading, that they're they're actually engaged in an activity. So um, the preface is partly to set up that idea of um, connecting the reader to this tradition of literature, which is about being self-aware and trying to get the reader to reflect on and to meditate on the book and the act of reading, which is such an important part of our lives. Uh, But the preface also, I'm hoping, um, will will set up a number of story threads that, if I get my wish, uh, will be further developed in a sequel to Crossing. Um, that's so interesting about that uh, that tradition of literature that you're referring to there, um, drawing attention to the act of reading and the book is an object. What's the what's the purpose of doing that? Like, isn't the point of a, a good novel to make you forget the world and, you know, for escapism and to forget the fact that you're reading a book? Well, that's a fascinating question, Angus. And in fact, uh, of course, you're right on one level. Um, the kind of literature that tries to get us to forget that we're reading is, you know, the dominant form of literature. Um, and, it, you know, it's called realism. And um, it's been the way we've read mostly for a couple of hundred years. But there's also this other tradition that goes back to the very origins of the novel, which um, the first modern novel was Don Quixote by Cervantes. And um, in that tradition of the novel, there's always a sense of playful awareness that you're reading something artificial. And why is that important? It's important to me because... um, I don't necessarily want my readers to forget that they're reading. I, I, as a reader, I enjoy being reminded that I'm being played with. It's a little bit like hypnosis, and hypnosis is a theme in the novel. If you read up on hypnosis, hypnotists say that hypnotists don't hypnotise. People who are hypnotised 
allow themselves to be hypnotized by the hypnotists. Right. In other words, when we, when we read, we want to escape. We want to be taken to another place. But I think in this day and age, you know, in the days of, in, in the time of uh, Trump, for example, we're, li- we're, we're living in a world where this need for us to escape is becoming possibly counterproductive. It's becoming a little bit dangerous. Mm. And I, I like this other, and I think there's a real re-emergence of the tradition that I've been speaking about. And it's partly in response to the nature of the world that we're living in. It's a world where there is so much uh, information. Um, there's such a deluge of information. We're becoming lost a little bit in... Um, we're becoming uncertain of what is real and not real. And so what I want to do as a writer, but also as a reader, is I want to never quite forget that I'm reading so that that self-aware part of myself, that, that part of myself that is engaged, for example, when I meditate, um, is really engaged in the act of reading as well. And it's just another form of pleasure. It's not intended to um, turn reading into a chore. I think it's another form of pleasure. And I think there's, there's a number of readers out there who would also find that pleasurable. Yeah, that's all definitely making sense to me in regards to your book, because as I mentioned in the intro, you can read this book conventionally front to back or follow the Baroness sequence where you're sort of taking this zigzagging haywire route through the novel, jumping between the three stories. And um, of course, I did it did it that way, because if you're given the option to read it normally or read it in a new, interesting way, of course, you're going to take the more interesting way. And as I was sort of flipping through, you know, from page 150 back to 1 to 39 and so on, every time I did that, instead of just unthinkingly turning the page, I had to think about, you know, where I was going next and making sure that I was on the right page and, and doing all that in a very sort of deliberate way. So I guess giving people the option to read the book that way, is that was that another sort of technique for reminding people that they were reading an actual book and breaking that sort of escapism? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I know that it's... The the pleasure that comes from consuming a book um, unthinkingly is well-established. We've all done it, and we love it. That's why we read. That's why we're addicts. But there's there's a different kind of pleasure that comes from being reminded. It's like when... Um, you're at the theatre. When you're at the theatre, um, you get sucked into the play, but you also never forget that you're at the theatre because you can see the other audience members. You can see the, the stage, the limits of the stage. So it's a real kind of push-pull kind of thing where you're getting sucked in, but at the same time you're always being reminded, this is not real. So don't forget that you you are volunteering for an act of hypnosis. And we are constantly being cajoled into allowing ourselves to be hypnotised. And I think it's not a bad thing to exercise a certain amount of will when it comes to when we do and do not allow ourselves to be put under this spell. 
Yeah, especially when you're thinking about the siren call of, uh, you know, social media and technology, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you think it's a really different experience reading Crossings conventionally compared to following the Baroness sequence? Well, I think about that a lot. You know, um, I am only the writer of this novel. I will never have the pleasure of reading it as someone who is completely unfamiliar with it. But I think, yes, I'm told from the early readers that um, there is a bit of a stark difference. If you read it conventionally, what is really brought out in that sequence is the puzzle aspect of reading the book because you have three stories that are very different and you have to kind of work your way through it a little bit like a puzzle and just pick up the clues and connect them in in that way. I think uh, from what I'm hearing, and it makes sense to me as the writer, if you, if you read the Baroness sequence, there's more of an emphasis on the romantic side of the story because all of those stories really kind of blend in together and the themes blend in together in, in a more natural and organic way. And when I was writing the book, I initially wrote it in that Baroness sequence that now hops around, but initially that's how I thought of it. And it's only very late in the writing process that I had the idea of presenting the story to the reader in these two different formats and allowing the the reader to make a decision about which way she wanted to to read the story. One of those stories, the first one, if you you read the book conventionally, is presented as a letter written by Charles Baudelaire, who was a real French poet and a translator for Edgar Allan Poe in the 19th century. Where did your interest in that literary figure come from? So initially I had this uh, this idea for a story that I was uh, describing earlier about the, the ship that discovers an island. I was also, while I was writing the Daily Fiction Project, interested in uh, another story, which was the story of the final hours of the German writer Walter Benjamin in 1940. And Walter Benjamin was himself really um, fascinated by Charles Baudelaire. So when I connected Walter Benjamin and the island story together, it seemed natural to me to look at Baudelaire as the story that would link those two other stories together. And Baudelaire's story is fascinating because Baudelaire's life partner, his romantic partner, was a woman called Jeanne Duval, who was a brown-skinned woman, a woman of colour. We don't know much about her. Not much is written about her since she herself had an aversion to public attention. Or she's been written out of history subsequently because she was a woman and because she was a person of colour. But Angela Carter wrote a short story about Jean Duval called uh, Black Venus. So she was on my radar in that sense. And so uh, I, I was interested in their love story and I wanted to write their love story into the book. I also was interested in taking up that theme of being self-aware about literature. I thought, okay, well, what if I write a story in the style of Edgar Allan Poe because Baudelaire was so interested in Poe? Uh, And so I wrote this kind of gothic uh, mid-19th century almost parody uh, story with Baudelaire as the central figure. 
Yeah, and he um, has such a grouchy voice as well that's very entertaining in parts to read. And in fact, there's one scene where at a dinner party where he, um, he really goes off about Belgium, which was his, his adopted home at the time. Yeah. And I, um, talking about stealing things, I lifted that from Baudelaire's own um, back catalogue of, of writings. Um, it was a minor thing that he wrote at the very end of his life. He wrote this rant about Belgium. And when I read it, it was so funny that I thought, I'm going to take that. I modified it. I, I, I changed the order and I left bits out. But I included it in, included it in that dinner party scene, um, just as an homage to him. And um, to make to, to really give the the beginning of the story for those who who are reading it in the conventional sense a real kind of spark. Yeah, I was going to ask about that scene in particular because that's yeah where you really get a sense of his excoriating self. So um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that that comes straight from his mouth. But um, yeah, wow, what a guy. <laughs> um, so at the centre of your novel is this strange phenomenon of crossing that you mentioned before where people can pass themselves from one body to another. Are you aware of any sort of mythologies or belief systems where people believe in this sort of kind of soul transferal? No, it's um, it may it may exist, it may, uh, but if it does, I have no knowledge of it. It's completely fictional, but it's fascinating. It's a fascinating idea because, uh, at least the way that I've written about it, it's not a um, it's not a coloniz- It's not strictly speaking a colonisation of someone else's body. It's an exchange of souls. So if I'm doing it, I go into the uh, body, my soul goes into the body of the other person that I'm looking into, but that person's soul comes into my body. And so there's, a, there's an exchange there. And so there's a certain kind of moral dimension to the act in the sense that um, in the book, a lot of the crossings that take place take place between an old body and a new body. And so the soul, uh, an old body and a young body, I should say. So the soul of the young body finds themselves, um, without knowing it most of the time, in, in an old person's body. And um, so there's a certain kind of moral dilemma that often comes up as a result of those exchanges. As I think listeners might have ascertained by this point, this is an extremely unique, strange and fabulously entertaining story. But what is it really about? What are some of those themes that came up as you, the broader themes that came up as you wrote this novel? Well, it's about empathy. It's about empathy in, in, in its radical sense, radical empathy and the power of that. It's about how um, literature is really a form of recorded empathy. Uh, when we read... We are, we are, we are crossing ourselves. We're, our our soul is entering into the into the body, if you like, speaking in a metaphorical sense of the author, and the author is entering into us at the same time. But it's not just a literary phenomenon. Crossing takes place all the time. We cross with each other when we love each other, um, and in a sense, when we love someone, a little bit of them enters into into us and stays with us forever. Uh, it's also, to a large extent, about memory. Um, and um, I, there are two, initially two characters and then there's a third one emerges um, that can um, perform these uh, crossings. And uh, one of them is driven by memory 
One of them is driven by uh, forgetting and, and the, a third one is driven by anger. Um, so it's an exploration of those kinds of um, ideas and how they play out in our lives. It's an exploration of, of history and how we, how we got to where we are now. Um, yeah, and it's above all, I guess, uh, an homage to to writing and to literature and to the to the writers and, and historical figures that appear in the novel. Yeah, beautiful. I think uh, we're definitely in need of a bit of radical empathy in today's day and age. So, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, Alex, I would love to know some of the writers and books that uh, you look up to as a writer yourself. Yeah. So I am um, a very, very uh, profoundly uh, influenced by Roberto Bolaño, who was a Chilean-Mexican writer who died about 15 years ago. Um, his book, The Savage Detectives, is, um, probably, has probably made the single biggest impact on me as a writer. Uh, I'm very influenced by um, George Perec, a French writer from the 1970s, by uh, Borges, the Argentinian writer that I mentioned earlier, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, the Colombian writer. Um, so Latin American and um, European literature are really big for me. Um, W.G. Sebald, the German writer, Thomas Bernhardt, the Austrian writer. Um, in Australia, I am uh, hugely influenced, especially Crossings by Peter Carey, uh, American writers, um, probably Paul Oster. And I think um, Virginia Woolf's Orlando is a really big influence on this, on this particular novel, as is the Angela Carter short story, Black Venus, that I mentioned earlier. Alex, thank you so much for joining me to chat about this book. Um, like I, I hope people can tell, I think it's so interesting and fabulous. And um, I've given it a five-star review in the next issue of Good Reading Magazine if people want to check that out for a more formal rant from me. Um, but it's been so fascinating to hear you talk about this book. Thank you so much for joining me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Angus. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. Crossings by Alex Landragon is out now from Picador, Australia. You can get it at all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.